You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. My name is Brittany. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you at some point this morning or in the past couple of weeks, or if you're brand new to us today, we're so glad that you're here. I'm going to be bringing us through our message this morning as our kids kind of transition upstairs. I'll reiterate what Imani said, which is we are a church that exists to see lives transformed by the love and truth of Jesus because when we know, we know that when he changes us, we go out into the world and we bring that change with us and we get to see our communities and our workplaces and our families impacted by heaven. And so we're so glad that you're here with us. We are on a journey. It's a long journey. Would you believe if I told you we are in the last book of the Old Testament that we have yet, April's eyes, that we have not yet covered? We have done it, and we've done it in a little shy of two years. But if this is your first Sunday with us, we have been working our, our way through the entire Old Testament. And starting with Advent at the end of November, we're going to be kicking off a journey into the entire New Testament, and that will probably take a lot longer, <laughs> which is okay. We've already booked out Matthew for a year join us. We're really excited about that. Um, But we're doing this because the Bible is confusing, right? It's written a long time ago to a different people in different languages, and it can be really hard, if we're honest, to pick it up and understand what it's all about. And honestly, we can lose track of the fact that this gift that God has given us was created to be a place to connect with his heart. That's the purpose of the Bible, to be a place for us to connect with the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we have had a really good time, and we are going to end in the Song of Songs. So I'm going to give you a disclaimer now, because if you have children in the room that you do not want to hear this, there is childcare upstairs. We are going to be talking about Song of Songs. The content is sex. We are going to have a very honest conversation I leave that to parents and guardians, caregivers to decide what you want to do with that. Um, But let's start off with a poll, because now that you're all like scared, Brittany just said sex. I'm going to say it a lot, sex. We're going to talk about it. If you need to giggle, it's okay. I'm not offended. I've had a lot longer than you to process that this is coming out of my mouth. It's okay. Um, But I want to ask this question right at the beginning, and you can shout out or share your answers. But what is the most significant human experience... You know, don't get hyper-spiritual on me. What's the most significant human experience that a person can have, in your opinion? Earth? Birth. Amen. (laughs) Sickness? Love? Death? Salvation? Okay, Jen, hyper-spiritual. Whatever. No, you're good. What else? Love, birth, death, relationships. Can I get an amen? Anything else that stands out to you as like really powerful? Those are good. Those are all really good. They're all people. Friendship, yeah. Epiphanies, hey. Trauma. Grace. There's a lot of really powerful things in what you said. I will also point out that all but one of those has to do with other people. Hmm. There's something, hmm? Sex. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Linda. (laughs) I know, I should have asked this before my disclaimer, but I wanted to be really careful because, again, there are a variety of ears in the room and, and people need to make a decision. 
according to the last book that we are going to cover, it's not the last book the way that the Old Testament and the Protestant Bible is set up, but it is the last book we are going to cover today. According to Song of Songs, the most significant human, and I want to emphasize that, human experience, we're not talking about the spiritual, but the human experience that a person can have is sexual intimacy with a spouse. And I want to be really clear that there is a boundary or a caveat tied to that. The most significant um, experience, human experience that somebody can have is sexual intimacy within the boundary or the confines of a marriage. And the title, Song of Songs, or depending on what translation of the Bible you use, could be Song of Solomon if you're flipping through and looking, um, sets us up for that. Because whenever we come across this Hebrew idiom in our text, you'll see it also in reference to Jesus when he's the king of kings or the Lord of Lords, whenever we come across this type of, of idiom in the Hebrew, it's the way that the writer was, it was what the writer was doing to say that this is the most significant thing compared to all the things. Like it's actually incomparable. It's so good. It's so great. Jesus is greater than any king that ever existed. He's the king of kings and he's really beyond compare with all of the kings or all of the politicians or rulers of the world. And so the author of Song of Songs is saying, this is the greatest song of all time. Imani, you can fight them on that if you have an opinion that is different. They're saying this is the greatest compilation. It's not even a book, and it's, it's really more than a song. It's poetry. It's a, it's a collection of Hebrew love poetry, and it is sensual. There's a lot to this. And he, the person who wrote this is saying it's the best poetry, the best song. It's the best writing around this topic that has ever come. And what it's saying within that is that the sexual experience between a man and a woman, between a husband and wife, the Bible's not just saying that that's the most satisfying union, the most pleasurable union, or even um, the most celebrated. It's actually the experience beyond all experiences. All right, big shoes to fill, Bible. Big shoes to fill. As we have the conversation about this greatest human experience, I want to say a few things right from the start. One, this is a topic that's not often talked about in the church. I am not going to be able to cover all of it this morning. I am going to make this a two-part message, meaning I'm not going to get through everything I have prepared. We're going to move it. Part of it's going to begin next weekend. Um, within that, two weekends is not enough. So I will give you, at the end of next week, a handout with a list of books, podcasts, magazine articles, and things you can read to further study this topic on your own. I also encourage you in the next week to read through Song of Songs. It's eight chapters. They're not long. Um, it's very interesting because it's poetry. So remember, you're reading poetry. Don't try and be super, super literal. Her eyes and her hair do not look like goats and things. Um, that would be a really interesting angelic-like person, if we're being honest. It sounds like some of the angels. Um, but I won't be able to cover all the topics. And so if you have questions, this conversation is meant to be the open door to the office, if you will, to say, hey, Britt, you open the door, I, I do have questions about it, and I can look at the resources you've given me, but we can also have honest conversations because if the Bible put a whole book in here about it, it's important. It needs to be talked about, and we were going to have a good time doing it, and if not a good time, at least a really awkward one because if the Bible has put a whole book in here, why does the church avoid talking about sex? All right, can I get a hand? Has anybody ever had a conversation like this in church on a Sunday morning? I know a few people because I, yes. All right, Johanna and her family, that's it. And Dan, apparently Dan. In London, they're like, it's not taboo. We're going to have this conversation. 
The problem is when the church doesn't talk about it, we have to go other places to find out about it because it is a very common experience, right? And so if you're not reading in your Bible, where else can you go to find out about it? Where else have you gone to find out about sex? The interwebs, always a good place. Everything on there is true, Imani said this morning, so it's fact. Hmm? TV and media, yeah. Where else do we look? Books, magazines, friends, Dr. Ruth, long time ago, right? Hmm? Movies, yeah, we find it in all of these other places. Our, our society is saturated with sex. Everyone has an opinion on it, and almost none of them, I would say none of them actually, line up 100% with what the Bible says, which means most of us in this room are carrying some idea about sex that's not biblical and isn't actually going to lead to life and health, which leads me to say the second really important thing to remember. First, it's a book of poetry, so read it with that, that lens, right? We've talked about Hebrew poetry. You don't read it literally. You, you can't. It's poetry. And second, it was written in the Hebrew wisdom tradition. And think back to Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. We covered that in the spring and the summer. Hebrew wisdom tradition was started by Solomon, and it had one very specific purpose, and that was to help people, especially young people, live a good, healthy, fulfilling life in a complex and confusing world. So as we're reading through Song of Songs, this is essentially somebody said, I want to create a user guide to this really significant experience that a lot of human beings, many, most, will have in their lifetime, um, and in order for us to to be able to engage it appropriately, we just need to navigate it with the wisdom that it is poetry and that it is a guidebook. But if you're here and you're like, I've never had sex, I'm not dating, I don't even know if I want to be married, or perhaps you're divorced, or you're, you know, I don't know what your sex life is like, which is fine, I'm not asking you to tell me after this. I want you to know that just because you may not feel that this is applicable to you today, doesn't mean that it's not applicable to you at all, especially what we get into next weekend. So hang in there with me, come along for the ride, because we want to be a people who follow Jesus and the wholeness that he has offered to us as his followers. And that means having a healthy biblical understanding of sex and sexuality. So let's do it. Let's pray. And let's dive into this really funky little book. Holy Spirit, you have given us so much wisdom, so much guidance as our comforter and our leader, and you help us to understand the scriptures. So I just ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, and do that this morning once more. And wherever there is guilt or shame or fear or trauma or misunderstanding or any of the emotions that may be somehow attached to sex in someone's life, I pray that they would hear your words and truth would come and bring freedom and healing and peace this morning. This is not a place of shame, Holy, Holy Spirit. This is a place of safety. And this is a good conversation that you want to have with your church. And I pray that you would bring good fruit out of it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> like I said, two-part message. I'm going to just overview very quickly. This morning, we're going to talk about sex the way that it was intended by God. So this is the ideal. Next weekend, we're going to talk about how you enjoy an ideal thing in a broken world. So realize that as I'm having this conversation and you're saying like, but Brittany, that's not how it works or that's not my experience or blah, blah, blah. We are going to get there just next weekend. For now, we're going to look at what sex is, which is a gift. And gifts are not received by the same people the same way, right? Um, 
Well, I was going to say, if I, you know, Johanna gave me a lovely pair of earrings that I'm very excited to wear this morning. And I was going to say, if she gave them to Dan, he'd be like, not the same. But Dan has earrings, so he probably would like it. Somebody else may be like, that gift is not the same. Um, but sex in this book is looked at specifically from both the female and the male perspective. And we're going to start with the female perspective because, shocking, her voice is the primary voice throughout the text. She says more, which is so fascinating to me. Um, and she is phrased as the beloved. If it, some, some translations have that where there's the little subtitles that are added in to help you know who's talking because poetry is confusing. But the fact that the woman is the person who speaks the most about sex is so shocking and countercultural to us because most of the time we believe that sex is something that was created for men. In fact, you have a little true-false thing that Dan handed out to you, and that's to help you follow along. You can use that as we're going through, label things true and false, and at the end of two weeks, hopefully have a clear picture of biblical sex if that's something that you have no picture of right now. But to say, suffice it to say, we've always treated sex as something that like men like, it's for men, it's all about men, and women are just kind of along for the ride, for better or for worse. And the author of Song of Songs has an incredibly different take about this. Starting right from the get-go in chapter 1, verse 2, she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Some of you don't even like wine in the room today, and that's fine. And you're like, I don't like wine. I definitely don't like sex. It's nothing for me. Um, but we have to remember that in the Old Testament, there were not a lot of pleasures, right? There's no TV. There's not a lot of sweets, like sugar is not nearly as accessible as it is today. There's not, you know, nobody's just going on shopping binges on, on Amazon or TV binges watching Netflix. Wine was basically it. Wine was like the one accessible pleasure that people of all different socioeconomic types could get access to. And here the woman is saying, I prefer my lover's bedroom antics to wine. The woman is coming right out and saying that in the very first line, because the chapter one, verse one, is just a, it's where this is coming from. It's coming from wisdom tradition. And so for her, she's saying sex is not a chore or an obligation. It's not something I feel like I have to do or I'm required to do. Instead, we find a really interesting dynamic for women, at least I think culturally for us. She is extremely forthright about her desire and her longing with her partner, with her spouse, and keeps going. I won't read all of it. You can read through it on your own. I grabbed the ones that were like, you can read between the lines. But in Song of Songs 2, verse 3, she says, like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit, right? You can just read between the lines there. But the reality is she is excited about sex with her lover. She, this is her spouse. This is her partner. They're in a committed relationship. And she's not looking at it like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to do it. Like, maybe he, I'll fall asleep before he does tonight so, like, we don't have to talk about it or I don't have to have an awkward conversation. We find her enjoying her sexuality without shame or fear. In fact, she carries an air of confidence in herself about her sexuality that I think if you're in a woman in the room today, you probably have questions about. I know I read that and think, man, that's not how we treat women in sexuality for the most part. Even after the sexual revolution, that's not how we treat this dynamic with men and women. And so I think you might be curious to know, how did she get to this posture position? How did she get to this perspective about sex? And I think the author answers that. Essentially, women are built different than men, right? 
Yes, we can all agree with that. Women are built different than men. That's a good thing. We can say yes. This is a little science, a little, a little Jesus, because Jesus made our bodies and made science. Um, and if you've never heard this, women require different things to enjoy sex. Like I said, I'm not getting hypergraphic this morning, but let's just be honest. If you want a woman to enjoy sex, you have to understand her body, and so does she. Right? For a woman to reach orgasm or climax, it's going to be different than it is for a man. It takes more time. And the author doesn't explicitly say that. There's not like a footnote that you read that. But if you read through the poetry, you get a glimpse of this reality as you're, you're watching the dance between these lovers. And so there's this understanding of the female body. He seems to be quite good at it, right? And she seems to know what she likes and can be really explicit about asking for it, and there's no shame about that, which also shows us that there's this profound level of honesty that she has with her partner. For whatever reason, there can be shame in between married couple dynamics where you may or may not like something that happens in sex and you don't say anything. And then there becomes this disconnect because it's not enjoyable. And we don't watch that happening here in this poem. Instead, we watch her be able to be very honest with her partner about what she enjoys so that it becomes something that is pleasurable for both of them. And this goes even further into the dynamic within, especially within the way that Christians talk about sex and marriage, where like, you don't talk about it at all if you're not married. Ooh, it's scary. It gets that unknown world. But then the moment you get married, it's like this expectation that you're just going to fit together and it's going to be work. It's going to work and it's going to be really good, which is almost entirely untrue. It's something that requires learning, learning your body, learning your partner, knowing what they like and what they don't like. And without honesty, you're not going to have that conversation. But that leads us then to the only way that a woman is going to feel comfortable having those conversations with her lover, with her par partner or spouse, is if there is an emotional connection with him. And that's what the author gets to. And I find it repeated over and over in chapter two, in chapter five, and in chapter seven. All the verses will be behind me. She emphasizes the kind of emotional intimacy that they also enjoy that's beyond just the physical. My lover is mine and I am his. This is my beloved and this is my friend. I am my lover's and he claims me as his own. We get this picture of them being so connected, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. They know each other inside and out. And that allows her to have a dynamic of shamelessness, fearlessness, openness, and vulnerability in their sex life that makes it really good and enjoyable for her. And so, for sex to be the gift that God intends for women, it means that she is experiencing depth and connection with her partner, right? She is seen, she is heard, she is known, and she feels loved. And so they're experiencing a bond that allows her to feel safe enough with her husband to express her longing and needs freely. And that safety builds a confidence, a dynamic confidence in her that allows her to flourish, that allows her to be herself and allows her to feel like I am an equal part in this relationship or dynamic that is healthy and good. And so sex becomes something exciting and gratifying for her. Men are different. I want to be clear that the outcome actually isn't different. It's how we get there, how men get there, that is different from women. And this may feel a little bit more familiar to us because we do talk about men in culture a bit more. Um, but, interestingly enough, 
The man's voice is the secondary voice in this story, sometimes labeled the lover, depending on your translation. Um, it's a guy, and it's probably not Solomon. You see him referenced a bunch of times in the third person, and sometimes people think, oh, Solomon wrote this to one of his wives. That's pretty unlikely because he married like 700 of them. And this is clearly like a really intense loyalty and fierceness. You can tell they have eyes for no one else. And even though Solomon's marriages were often political, that's a lot of people. Like, can you fathom that? That's like a 16th of the city of Goes. <laughs> that's a lot of people. Um, so it's probably not him. He's referenced because he's the author of wisdom tradition. He's the one where it came from. And so this person is writing in that vein. And it uses Solomon because he was a really wise guy. Just, I don't know what he was doing. Um, but it's clear that sex is also a gift for men. It's something that they also need. Um, and it, it leads to a similar outcome as women, but how men get there is different. And we can acknowledge that men are built differently, right? In Song of Songs 1 verse 9, he says to his lover, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Uh, there's a lot of these comparisons. They're very confusing to us because some of them are very strange. Um, but to kings in the ancient Near East, they went into battle. And they went into battle on horses and with chariots and with infantry. Remember, there are no guns. It's bows and arrows and hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so the leaders whether it's in Egypt or in any of the ancient Near Eastern countries, needed to have the fasted, fastest horses available because if danger struck, if they were near death, if, if they get injured or if the battle's turning, they need to be able to get out of danger as quickly as possible. So they're like, we're going to hitch the most horsepower to you so that you can jettison out if things are going bad and everyone's about to die. Well, horse trainers realized that if you bring a mare or a female horse among stallions, you actually whip them into a sexual frenzy, so they run faster and they are stronger. So they're like, all right, we'll just bring her in before we go into battle, and like we've just turbocharged? Is that what you do to an engine? We've just turbocharged the chariot, right? We've just added some power to it. Um, and so what the lover is saying to his beloved, he's like, when you and I are together sexually, it, it boosts my confidence. It makes me feel stronger or faster or more manly. My morale surges. I feel good about myself because I feel seen and heard and desired. Right? That's, that's the same thing that the woman wanted too, right? Yeah, she got there differently. She needed that emotional connection to lead into sex. And here the man is saying, I long to feel those same things. I long for you to look at me and be like, my man is the man. And I feel that a lot of ways. I'm not saying this is the only way men feel that. I'm not a man. I can't even speak to this. But the reality is in, in this passage of scripture, he's saying, I feel even more good about myself, more manly, more strong, more powerful, when you accept my advances, when you accept me sexually, when you let us do the thing, I feel good. It makes me feel like, like powerful and yeah, confident and connected. And I think that that's really important for us to hear because we typically, if we do talk about sex with men, it's all physical, right? Men have a high sex drive. Men need sex, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is, yeah, maybe that's true, but underneath it is an emotional desire for connection. I'm seeing a few nods, so I think I'm tracking with the guys. I didn't, like, run all of this by Tim. I probably should have. I'm like, man, this is, a, this is an interesting one to talk about when you've not had that dynamic. But the reality is how he gets there is just different. 
And so, again, men are wired differently. They tend to be a lot more visual. So they want to feel wanted and loved and seen and heard. And the way that they initiate that type of connection is by being enamored with their significant other, with their spouse. They love to look at you, wives. They enjoy that, and it's not weird or creepy or strange, although sometimes I'm like, Tim, you're such a creep. And he's like, I'm your husband. And the reality of that is it just, it allows them to begin to try and be vulnerable, right? It's the entryway to them saying, hey, you're really cute. I like you. Can we like hang out? And we, we see him do this, <laughs> Dan, hey. It's still me. It's, this is very awkward. Well, I'm glad it's awkward. You're going to remember it. This is one of those sermons you're like, I'm never going to forget the time Bernie talked about this. But anyway, so there's no, I don't have any bananas. <laughs> so he, he gets to the point, and what you'll see, we know that he's a mostly, we know he's a mostly visual person because almost the entire time that we see him speaking or writing, he is actually talking about her beauty. Almost every verse is him talking about how she looks. I, I have a couple pictures behind me. Your hair, uh, Ashley will joke about this because we've talked about it before. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goat winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep recently shorn and freshly washed. That's good. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. There's the classic verse about her bosom looking like deer. Um, and other parts of her body looking like pomegranates, right? So he's got all the, he's got all of the, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? He is laying it on thick. He's got all the pickup lines for his lady, like, hey. And so, whereas women long for connection, which b builds to sex, men are visual, and so they are, their on-ramp is for them to see their spouse and say, hey, like, I like you, you're cute, let's, let's hang out. And through that, that's an extremely vulnerable ask. It's an extremely emotional connection to say, like, I am feeling attracted to you in a way that I want to connect with you because there's no guarantee that she's going to say yes, right? There's no guarantee that she's going to honor that. And if that's one of the ways that he feels really strong and confident and he's putting himself out there and saying, you get to determine whether or not, like, this thing happens. Like, I'm putting myself out in a vulnerable place for you. And we actually watch this kind of expression of vulnerability in this exchange with this couple. At the end of chapter four, he says to her, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. And she's like, ah. Um, and so she says back to him, she, he's like, hey, I'd like to have sex with you. And she says back to him, okay. She says in 16, come into your garden, my love, taste its finest fruits. There's all kinds of things to that. And then in Song of Songs 5, we just move right into the next chapter, verse 1. He says, I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. And so again, men and women are, are just purely built differently. Um, but the need that they're expressing at the very core of all of this is not different. How we arrive at what we want is not we're not in the same car per se, but the destination for intimacy, for love, for belonging, for acceptance, without shame or fear or condemnation, that is the thing that couples are, that's the thing that everybody wants the most. Whether you're a couple or not, if, as a human being, there is an innate longing that God has placed in you to be loved without barriers or walls. 
to be loved without fear. And sex is actually just, the reason it's the experience beyond all experiences is because it can be the epitome of that type of connection. And listen to my words, it can be. We know that that is not always true. We know that sex is demonized, weaponized, and abused all of the time. And we will acknowledge that next week because right now we're talking about the ideal. We need to understand how to enjoy the ideal in a world that is broken where pain and abuse do exist. But for right now, sex is a gift. And for a man, he also wants to, desi- he wants to be desired. He wants to be longed for. He wants to be connected with his spouse. He wants to be able to be vulnerable with her and be received right? Be welcomed in like, yeah, I like you too. Not constantly shut down because when he does, it builds a dynamic confidence in him. Sex is meant to be amazing and pleasurable and good. Like just from a purely human perspective, it's meant to be a lot of fun, but it's also showing us or revealing something far deeper, which we just started to touch on. It's beginning to point to this much deeper need and how we were created and who we were created by. In fact, all of the imagery in Song of Songs, we're talking about people and and sex and nakedness and there's no shame or fear and they're in a garden or a lot of gardens and you're like, listen folks, do you have a house? Go to your house. But they're in a garden more often than not. And the reason for that is because the author is trying to get us to think about another passage of scripture. Any guesses? Yes, Eden, thank you, yes. Genesis 2, verses 20, actually 24 to 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Eden, I always go back to this, Eden is our ideal. It's the closest thing we can understand to how God intended for the world to work before sin came in and began corrupting things. Now, Jesus gives us a lot. He adds on to this as we begin to look forward to what is coming. Um, But when it comes to relationships, it's really helpful to go back to this dynamic, specifically when we're talking about a husband and a wife, and see what God planned for them. Initially, God makes Adam. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to put my image in Adam, and you're going to have fun. Go name all the animals, do all the stuff. And God, who is relational, God three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, realizes, you know, humanity is like the apex of our creation, but Adam being alone isn't good. Everything else is good, right? Everything else in creation is good, but Adam being alone is not good. And so God puts him to sleep, and we've got all sorts of debates about the Hebrew, but essentially... The way I've come to understand it is it's a lot more than a rib. I feel like Adam just kind of got split into two. And you have Adam and you have Eve. And God has put his nature into both of them. But there's something dynamic about the fact that God's nature exists in both male and female. We're both different. We've talked about that enough this morning. We each have different strengths and weaknesses. We each reveal different parts of the character of God to the world. And so marriage, God gives us the gift of marriage because he's saying, bring my image together so that people can see the fullness of who I am through your marriage. This is why marriage is sacred, why it is to be protected, why we honor it between a man and a woman, because together they come and they bring the image of God back together. I recognize we're broken, right? I'm not saying like every marriage is just, ah, an epiphany, but that was the intention, 
God's like, you're in here and you're in here. When you come together, the world gets to see me. They get to see how good I am, how gentle but powerful, how thoughtful, how nurturing, how strong and mighty. They get to watch me move in harmony as they watch your marriage. And then together, through that equitable marriage, you have a singular mission to bring me to the world to go and have, be fruitful, multiply, steward the earth, bring dominion, expand my kingdom. So Adam and Eve were created by a relational God to be in relationship, and there's power in that. God, because it, it could have just been Adam, and, and God, instead God says, I'm going to gift you intimacy. I'm going to gift you relationship. I'm going to give you the authority to keep co-creating the way that I did. Hello, babies, right? We are meant to be a living reflection of God, quite literally walking around the world. I know that my marriage is not perfect and not my parenting is not perfect, but can I tell you the amount of times that people have come up to me and said, man, I see, I see Jesus in the way that you interact with this child or like I watch you and Tim. And it's not because people think we're perfect, but because that's what marriage is supposed to do. And if you're doing it well, it will do that. If you're not doing it well, it will do the opposite, which is why, please, for the love of God, do not get married unless you are ready to make that kind of commitment. It's about oneness and selflessness and sacrifice. So that's what God did in the Garden of Eden. And sex then, in that context, if we're thinking about the ideal, is meant to be the epitome of human connection because ultimately Adam and Eve are moving together in harmony, unified vision, without shame, and they're committed to honoring and loving one another selflessly. They're committed to sacrificing for one another, and it's not an inequitable sacrifice. It's both of them doing that for the benefit of the other, so both are mutually built up. And so in that context, sex can become the epitome of human connection because it's that bringing physically together the oneness that God talks about. Two bodies are connected and something can happen, right? Right time of month, you're co-creating. Um, and so this is the apex in God's mind of relational intimacy. It's the apex of, or it's the physical demonstration of God bringing his image together in a couple. And it's it's beautiful because it should mean that both people are feeling safe and secure and connected. They feel belonging. They feel trust. There's just this sense of, I can be myself here. And that's what allows them to get to that point. I recognize that is not how it always goes. Again, we will talk about that next week. But this is how it was supposed to go. That's okay, and you can ask me all the questions. I'm fine with that. I don't have all the answers, but I will guide you to the people that do. I mean, Johanna's parents are here, so I will 100% go up the food chain and say, Doc has been a pastor for a lot longer than me and knows all the things and has done counseling, and ha they've done couples things together, not to you know, make them work while they're here. This is what makes sex the opportunity for us to understand one another, but it goes to the point that I think Joe had popped up for me. Sex is also, in this ideal scenario, the closest we can get to understanding the intimacy that the Trinity shares. I'm not being weird about that and saying that their intimacy is sexual. What I'm saying is that they exist in perfect harmony, 
perfect selflessness, perfect unity of vision. They never argue. They're never disjointed. There's always a perfect flow between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they gave that to us. They wanted us to be able to feel that in the human. And the way that they chose to pass that along was through the context of marriage as a husband and wife grow together and then come to that place of sexual intimacy where their bodies are connected. That is why sex is so important that it gets its own book in the Bible. That is also why it is so incredibly damaging when it's done recklessly, right? You can see the power that it holds. This is a gift with power, with authority, with the ability to release the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, but also the ability to destroy people. And we know that it does because many of our stories include that destruction for one reason or another. And so next week, that's what we're going to hit. We're going to talk about how do we move back towards the biblical ideal in a broken world so that we can enjoy healthy biblical intimacy, so that we can enjoy sex, but also can respect it for what it is because the wisdom writers believed that when you stay within God's good boundaries, it leads you to the best chance for a healthy and whole life. And I would like to believe that everyone here in the room, including me, would like that. And even if our story doesn't look like that right now, Jesus came to bring salvation, which is freedom. Your sex life, wherever it was, does not define where you can go with the Lord. There is nothing he cannot heal. Abuse, abortion, a bad marriage, pornography, whatever, nothing, A, you do not need to feel shame about that in this place. If we can talk about it, then Jesus can bring light to it and healing can happen. And you better believe that that is what he wants for you. Your story does not have to look however it has. There can be a place where you move forward and say, man, on this day, Jesus changed my life when it came to sex. And you can experience it in a good way. It can become good and healthy and wonderful for you. But if you don't go there, if you choose not to, then the danger is real that we will accept a lot of very expensive substitutes. And this is where I'll land us for today. I like to say that they're cheap, right? You know, the alternatives to this kind of sexual relationship is cheap, but it's not. The cost is tremendous if you don't do this within God's boundaries. Because porn and affairs and one-night stands and casual Tinder, if Tinder's even a thing anymore, I don't know, probably not, hookups, while you may get carried with the passion and you may have a good time, are not going to build a place of vulnerability and safety that allows you to feel what you really want, which is belonging, acceptance, safety, and security. It can't. There's no real intimacy in those moments. Yeah, you may have scratched an itch, but what you want more than anything is to be able to find someone that you can be shameless before honest with, accepted by. And even if you never get married, thank goodness, this isn't re like the Lord gave us this, but let's not forget the fact that Jesus has done this for us, right? Our, this father came, he sends his son from heaven so that we can be accepted and received. 
So that if, I mean, if you never get married, you're not missing out on anything. You're not somehow not going to be able to reveal God to the world if you're a single person your whole life. Do not hear me wrong and say like, this is it, better find someone. It is beautiful and it is powerful, but please know that God can do all things. And so if this isn't where your life ends up, that's okay too. Doesn't mean you can't long for it, and we'll pray for that next weekend, but just know that the Lord's not, you're not gonna miss out on something, so don't feel discouraged if this isn't what life looks like, okay? All right, so let's land on that plane because this is a weird, like, pause. Like I like to play, say with my son's pause game. We're going to pick this back up from this moment next week, but for right now, we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. If you're new to the vineyard, we like to end with ministry time. And what that is is we've heard a lot of stuff. Um, and talking about sex in the church is a lot like chewing on a steak, right? Like I feel like you have to all right, wait a minute, I have to think about that. I've got all the questions, which is good, and we'll get to those. Um, but there's time as we do ministry for the Holy Spirit for you to begin to ask him those things right, right to him. Um, so if you want, let's stand up, if you're able, just to move your joints. Things get tired, we get disconnected. I don't think I had a problem keeping anyone's attention today, probably. No, no, we're good. That's all I need to dance. Like just for all the kinesthetic people, just talk about things that are, um, taboo, and you'll stay with me. But I don't know where the Holy Spirit wants to go yet, so I'm going to invite him to come, and we're just going to wait, all right? <laughs>